Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. In the early universe, enormous clouds of diffuse neutral gases, known as DLAs, served as nurseries of sorts for stars and galaxies, as the gases were the fuel for star formation. We're speaking today with Rongman Bordeloy, an assistant professor of physics here at NC State, about the difficulties in studying DLAs, what we know about them, and what that might mean for our understanding of star formation in the earliest days of the universe. Welcome, Rongman. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. I am glad you are here. This is a very interesting topic to me. Um, so let's start by kind of defining what we're talking about when we talk about the early universe. This has always been a weird paradox for me, how when you look farther into the universe, you're actually kind of looking back in time. That is correct. The universe began around 13.5 billion years ago, roughly. And we are today, and if we want to look further away to the early universe, you just have to look at things which are very far away from us. And since light travels with finite speed, so the further an object is, the further back in time you're looking. For example, if you look at the sun, you're not actually seeing what's happening on the sun's surface now. It takes around eight and a half minutes for light to travel from sun to us. So you actually are seeing what the sun was doing eight and a half minutes ago. So if I you know, magically clap my hand and make the sun disappear, um, you won't feel the effect until eight and a half minutes later. Okay. So that's what we mean when we say we're actually looking back in time. Let's talk about DLAs. They stand for... What does DLA stand for, so, first of all? DLAs are an uh, acronym for Damped Lyman Alpha Absorbers. It's a very fancy name, but effectively, they're nothing but giant balls of sort of diffuse gas. They are neutral hydrogen atoms, which are pretty diffuse, and they are existing at a temperature of around, let's say, um, 10,000 degrees or so. Astronomically speaking, they're pretty cool. Um, but they are warm enough that uh, they, they don't collapse and form uh, solid stuff like we have here. Um, so they are kind of moving around in space and they're pretty diffuse. They have enough energy to move around. So they don't actually emit any light. So therefore, it's really hard for us to observe such diffuse structure. But these structures are very uh, dense. That is, the number of atoms per unit volume is very high. So um, when light passes through them, if there is a background star whose light is passing through them, these atoms can absorb that light. So we don't see them in emission, rather they are seen as lack of light in the uh, spectrum of a background source uh, which passes through them. So if you were to just look out into the universe and you just pretend like you had a completely unobstructed view, yes, all the way back to like 11 billion years ago sure. or thereabout, you would just see sort of an absence of light. You would see stars and then you would see nothing. Yes. Um, so the best way to describe it would be um, you're looking at the silhouette of the gas. Um, so if, uh, if you're on the beach and sun is setting and a person is walking, right, you don't see the person. You see the silhouette of the person in the backlight of the sun. It's the same sort of a phenomena, but in an atomic level. So we don't see the, the stuff, the gas itself, 
Rather, we see the lack of light because there is a background source, which is very bright. Light is uh, passing uh, through the gas towards us. Atoms absorb the wavelength of light, a certain wavelength of light that is corresponding to that uh, atomic transition. So what you see is really lack of light. This uh, method is called absorption line spectroscopy. So it's very dense gas and very uh, it's a large volume of gas. Therefore, we see this huge absorption line signatures in the spectrum of background sources. Okay, so how did, I guess, astrophysicists or astronomers first kind of figure out this is what that was? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting story. So to, to understand this, I will take you back on a little journey in time, okay? In the 1950s, um, we didn't know that you had galaxies 11 billion years ago. We knew the universe is very big. We had a rough idea how old the universe was, but nothing, none of those faint sources were detected then. When astronomers were doing some observation, they, they seemed to see some very, very bright sources on the sky. And they took a spectrum of it. It was a heroic effort in the 50s. And these were sort of star-like point sources, but not quite stars. So we call them quasi-stellar objects because they are not quite like stars. Um, when they took the spectrum, they were very confused. What are those? As it turned out, it's a different story, but they are supermassive black holes in the heart of a galaxy emitting light. Um, but what is interesting is that in, in those spectrum of faraway galaxy, uh, like supermassive black hole spectra, there are a lot of absorption lines, which you could not explain by stuff you see in our atmosphere or stuff you see in our Milky Way. So some very, uh, very thoughtful astronomers thought about it and they postulated that perhaps we're seeing stuff which is between us and the galaxies. So this is how this absorption line spectroscopy business began. And it took us another 30 years or so in the 1980s when people started doing continuously doing spectroscopy of very far away objects, they started seeing these massive bands of absorption. And this looked exactly like absorption uh, taking place because of uh, neutral hydrogen atoms. And this is so big and broad and thick that they called it damped Lyman alpha absorbers. Now we knew in, in the 80s that there, is, there are such things as damped Lyman alpha absorbers detected in background sources. And we know that such density of gas should be similar to what you'd see in our Milky Way galaxy's interstellar medium. So originally people thought, hey, maybe what we're detecting are really fuzzy, faint galaxies very far away. But we had no idea. When people went back and started to look for the galaxies, because you should find them, there was nothing. So that was a big puzzle for a very long time, that we see these crazy big absorption troughs indicating a lot of diffuse neutral gas, but we don't seem to find anything that is associated with it. So that was the status for a long time. We knew they existed. We didn't know how big they are. We didn't know how much stuff there is. And we didn't know if they are actually host galaxies or not. As an aside here, when we talk about spectroscopy um, in like astronomy and astrophysics, what is it that you're doing? Because the universe is hugely vast and it's not like you can just turn a light on and really look at it. So in order to identify these objects that are far, far, far away, you use spectroscopy. So what does that mean exactly? The, the simplest example I can think of it is you can, uh, when you have sunlight coming towards you, 
you put a prism in front of it. The, the, you see a rainbow of color coming on the floor because the prism basically disperses the light. As the light is passing through, it, we basically split the light as a function of wavelength because the refractive index of light depends on the wavelength of light. So you can actually disperse the light and study um, how properties of light vary as a function of its color or its wavelength. And this teaches us many different things. And this is effectively a spectrum of an object, the rainbow of light that you see. And it's important because bluer the light is, more energetic the, uh, the photon or the light coming towards you it is. So it gives you more information about uh, the internal structure of the source that is emitting the light. If you have lack of light there, exactly at the right wavelength where we know an atom should exist, we know that that atom ex exists in that source you're observing. Okay, so, even though you can't see it. Even though you can't see it. So right. spectroscopy allows you to study the chemical properties of the gas that we see here. Okay, so that's basically, it's a shorthand for how you identify what's in that giant cloud that just looks like a vast nothing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> to know what, what they are made out of. Yes. Right. Okay. So that's really fascinating that all of this is pretty recent stuff, I guess, as the technology has caught up with what it is that, you know, we're able to do. Um, when did we get the idea that there should be galaxies inside these DLAs? So we always suspected that they were, and they were in the 90s and the 2000s, there were hot debates that what are these DLAs? Because back, uh, that was right about the time when large telescopes started com getting commissioned and spectroscopy of these faint sources uh, started getting proliferated. So we started having large surveys which detected thousands and thousands of these DLAs. So people knew they existed. We knew that they are actually a large fraction of the total mass of the universe, but we didn't know where what they are. It was still debated hotly. We, we had our pet theories. We thought some people thought, oh, they're, a, they're actually a small galaxy. We're hitting a small galaxy. We see them. Some people thought, no, they're giant clouds of gas that just exist in void, etc. So there were a lot of pet theories. There was no way, no real way to sort of uh, dissect and say that this is the right answer. What happen again, you know, slowly we started getting better and better data. People started seeing that, oh, sometimes there are galaxies near these DLAs. So they are not necessarily the galaxies themselves. Rather, it could be the halo of the galaxies. So that was kind of the first breakthrough. We still did not know anything about how big they are. We still didn't know um, how many, like what kind of galaxies are there. It was still a big unknown. So we sort of we knew that one way to break this deadlock was, number one, we have to somehow figure out how big these DLAs are. And number two, we should be able to find a way to actually identify what are the host galaxies associated with it. If there are indeed giant balls of gas which are fueling these galaxies, we should be able to somehow dig, dig in and identify them. So this is where sort of our research comes in. And so you have managed with, like, using another galaxy as kind of a magnifying glass to give you a better look and some better technology. Yes. Figured out that you were able to look at two of these DLAs in a recent publication and see that both of them had what you call host galaxies in the center. So the way to do it is we had to wait until a few years when 
we started having these new instruments called large field in integral field spectrographs. Effectively, what they are, are they are a fancy camera which allows you to take a spectrum for every single pixel on that camera. So it's, it's a 3D instrument which allows us to do a spectrum of every single point on the sky where it's taking an image of. That was a breakthrough. And because of this and combination of the natural phenomena called gravitational lensing, which effectively allows us to zoom in on a small part of the sky and kind of magnify it, we were able to do this study. What's happening with these, do we think? Are these clouds sort of the, I guess, source material for all of the galaxies that exist currently? Did all of our galaxies develop in this way where these clouds just kind of, you know, what happens in the clouds? They just kind of squoosh down and make entire galaxies? That's an excellent question. <laughs> That's what we have been struggling for a very long time to understand. What actually happens? So... What you have to understand is that you see the you see a solar system today, which did not exist five billion years ago. Um, so our Milky Way galaxy is very large today, but it didn't start off this way. When galaxies are forming very early in the universe, that is a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, they are tiny, tiny things. They are basically um, some stars which are initially starting to form and coalesce around them to form a galaxy. Um, they are pretty small. And what happens is the universe is in, in those early days is filled with cool, diffuse gas all over the place. And these gases are getting gravitationally attracted to where the stars are because this is where you have the most gravity. So gravity attracts everything. So these gas clouds are coming towards you. But um, so they kind of form, they kind of exist in these halos around galaxies where a lot of diffuse gas clouds exist. And slowly, by various phenomena, these, they start losing their angular momentum and kinetic energy. They start accreting onto the galaxies. Then they get funneled into, into like denser and denser regions where gravity kind of pulls them in more and more and they start forming new stars. And this is how a galaxy grows, one, one of the ways uh, how a galaxy grows and forms new stars. So this diffuse gas cloud that you see around galaxy is actually sort of the fuel tank of the galaxy. So as the galaxy is kind of evolving in its cosmic journey, these gas is accreting onto the disk of the galaxy and forming the next generation of stars. So for example, the sun, you know, did not exist until such accretion of material fell in and gave it enough material for a sun-like star to be born. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is it a gas cloud, enough of that goes, you know, comes together to make a star, and then the rest of it eventually kind of draws in toward it? Yes, um, we, we definitely think that initially there were no stars when the universe began, right? right. And it's, it's a story of how our universe is born, essentially. Um, you initially had a Big Bang when, you know, everything was created, including space-time itself. And slowly the universe is expanding and things are cooling down. And once things are cool enough that the first neutral hydrogen atoms were formed because the universe is cool enough that neutral atoms can form. There were no stars then. But the universe kept expanding and there were 
small anisotropies in the space-time itself, right? There are regions where you have slightly more matter than the other region. So these, these regions where you have slightly more matter, a little bit more atom, they had more gravity than the other region. So slowly they started accreting more and more stuff. And that kind of grew until the first stars were born. After that, you know, they, you know it's, it's a runaway problem. It's like the richer, rich people get more rich. It's like the rich over density regions get more richer. So they, they attract more and more stuff to them and they kind of form more and more stars, which eventually became galaxies as we see today. Okay. So, and just to give people kind of an idea, obviously if galaxies are forming inside of these DLAs, these DLAs have got to be hugely enormous, vast areas of space. Do we have an idea? I know um, the research you recently did, you kind of have an idea of maybe how far across one might be that you observed, like how big are these things? So that's an excellent point. We know that these are massive reservoirs of gas around galaxies. That's how I would define it. And we think, at least for the objects we studied where we can measure its size, we actually we can set a minimum limit how big they are. They could be much bigger than this. And we find that they are at least um, 17 kiloparsecs across. That, in layman's term, I, I would translate it to around 55 to 56,000 light years across. So light will take 56,000 years to go from one end to the other. That's really amazing. And for context, now, if you take that size, um, look at our Milky Way galaxy, it's comparable to what the Milky Way galaxy is today. But the difference is, it was 11 billion years ago. So the size of the galaxy was much, much smaller. So the galaxies are a factor of five or six smaller. So although you, you have like comparable size and physical size, um, it's, it's proportionally, it's much bigger, it's a factor of five bigger than the how, the, how big the host galaxy should be at those redshifts. Okay, so it's like a little tiny seed galaxy in the center of the giant cloud. And yes. And then eventually, yes. the entire galaxy kind of takes up the whole area that the cloud yes. was? Yes, at least as big as that. And okay. this is kind of fueling the galaxy. Hopefully, it'll galaxy grows with it and becomes bigger. Now that you've sort of proven the concept that, hey, we can use these techniques and we can get much better sort of imaging of these things and kind of dig in and see what's going on. And yes, there were galaxies in the two that we studied and they were very, they were similar, correct? It wasn't like they were a bunch of distinct, you know, well, you only looked at two, but still it wasn't like they were really distinct from each other. It was like, here's a cloud and here's a little galaxy in the middle of it. Yes, they are similar in that. The one is a little bit bigger than the other, but, but on average they are similar, but you're right, this is just two. Yes. So we have to ask the question, is it all, is it always like this? Yeah. The answer is we don't know yet. So we are kind of expanding our scope of study. We're trying to get a bigger sample to answer the question, is it the general trend everywhere? Mm -hmm. um, another question is, if indeed they are just extended disks around, and we don't even know if it's a completely a diffuse halo in 3D or it's actually like a pancake-like extended disk-like structure where gas is co-rotating with the galaxy and falling in. We don't know these things. So we have to do additional studies, which would be in high resolution, as well as larger samples to actually nail down those questions. Okay. And what does that mean? I guess, let's say that you can find 
you know, these wonderful sort of like lens galaxy magnifying glasses here and there, and you can get a look at like a bunch of these things. What questions are we trying to answer here about how galaxies form? So there are a couple of big questions that are completely unknown. It's a little bit detailed, but let me put it this way. If you look around us, most of the atoms that you and I are made out of, um, that we see the sun is made out of, and you know the Milky Way galaxy is made out of, if we take it all, we count it up, and we, we try to say, okay, we know from the Big Bang Theory how much total matter, like or uh, baryonic matter, like the visible stuff you and I see, are, how much of this stuff is there. Then we kind of try to count it and see how much of stuff we can actually see. It's a surprising number that a lot of this matter is missing. So it turns out that more than 83% of the visible matter that you see, the ordinary matter that you see, are not inside galaxies. They're actually outside galaxies. So this is called a missing baryon problem. Now we know that in, in Milky Way-like galaxy, a lot of the stuff is outside galaxies. We also know that at high redshift, a lot of the stuff is even outside outside galaxies called in, in, in the intergalactic medium. Now, the question is, what fraction of this stuff exists in these halos around galaxies that can fuel star formation in the galaxies? That can tell us um, how big the galaxy will become in a few billion years from where we observe. It can also tell us, if you don't have such gas, if you see a galaxy without such a reservoir, we know that, you know, that galaxy, what we call, would effectively die. It'll stop forming stars. It'll become a dead galaxy. So we can actually ask the question, what makes a galaxy be star forming, become like a Milky Way, versus what makes a galaxy become a different kind of shape? What makes a galaxy red and dead? We see galaxies like this around us, like an elliptical galaxy. Can we actually explain, by looking at the reservoir gas, how a galaxy will evolve with time? That's one of the big questions we're trying to answer. Wow. That is a big question. That's really cool. I did not know that there were dead galaxies, that they just and didn't get the gases, I guess. They don't have the fuel. And yes. They, just they kind of, for whatever reason, they just can't form stars. Huh. And we don't quite really understand how they actually become the way they are. And the big question is, can life actually be sustained in such galaxies? We know that, you know, we, we have a solar system in our Milky Way like galaxy. So... Um, if if you don't have this chemical composition, we don't know that even, you know, uh, Earth-like planet might exist in those galaxies. We have absolutely no idea. This also brings me to kind of my last question that I always like to ask people. Like, you know, what is, you know, what brought you into this field of study, first of all? Like, why did you decide, hey, I want to look at what makes galaxies form? So that's an excellent question. <laughs> I always, um, as a kid, I always wanted to study astronomy for many reasons. I got inspired by reading a few uh, popular science books, which is kind of corny, but uh, it, it worked for me. And it really inspired me to ask the question, basically ask what we don't know about how stars are, how star, a star is born, what we don't know about how a galaxy is born, basically to ask the fundamental question. That always inspired me. So I always wanted to have an opportunity to study something new about the universe. And that has been driving me all my life, you know, just to 
just to ask the next question about what we, what can we learn a little bit more about something? And that has sort of led us, led me through this slippery slope of, you know, trying to understand what makes a galaxy what it is today. And we're trying to answer this question in many different facets. And that said, what is sort of the coolest thing you know, like the coolest fact that you've either discovered or, you know, learned about while you were pursuing these? Oh, there are so many things. Um, <laughs> you can pick the top three I, if you'd like. I can, I can definitely try, and I'll try to include something that we do. Um, so one cool thing I would say is, I don't know if you know this, the universe is filled with something mysterious called dark energy. Um, I have heard about dark energy, but I'm not real clear on what that is exactly or what it means. Nobody knows. Okay. But its effect we can all, at least astronomers, can see. And what is happening recently uh, we discovered that the universe, as, as you probably know, the Big Bang Theory basically showed, and it, it has been proven, that the universe is expanding. But something mysterious is happening recently that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. So things are kind of moving away from each other at a much faster accelerated rate. So we think what might be causing it is some sort of weird um, weird sort of energy field, which we call dark energy because we have no idea what it is, which acts something like negative gravity. Gravity attracts you, this kind of repels you. So this is one of the biggest mysteries right now that the universe is accelerating away and we don't quite understand what that is. And if you count up how much energy it is, it's actually around more than 70% of the total energy density of the universe today. So it's, it's the most dominant form of energy in the universe, but we have no idea what that is. That's definitely one of the cool things. 70% of what's making up the universe, we don't even know what it we is. We don't even know what that is. We know what it does. Um, I would definitely um, say the other cool thing we learned, and this definitely relates to what we do in our group, and this is a profound realization of our place in the universe, I would argue. So as I, as I said, um, as, I, as I said that our, the, the stuff, the ordinary stuff that you and I are made out of is only around 13% of the total uh, mass budget of a Milky Way like galaxy. Every atom that you and I are made out of, we're actually synthesized inside a star. We know that for a long time, you know, uh, because the only way we can have heavier elements than hydrogen or helium is because there's nuclear fusion inside stars. So you have carbon atoms that we are made out of. We have nitrogen that our atmosphere is made out of inside the core of a star. Those were regurgitated in supernovae explosions and basically that seeded the complex chemicals uh, that, the milk, uh, that our solar system is made out of. However, that we knew for a while. What we did not know and which, uh, which comes back to this missing baryons, is that when supernovas explode, they, they carry this material outside the galaxies. So we actually figured out that more than 80% of the atoms that you and I are made out of were actually outside our Milky Way galaxy at some point in the last couple of billion years ago. So if you think about it, part of us, part of the atoms that you and I are made out of were in... Uh, outside our galaxy at some point in the in the past. So that's a profound statement that we found actually with our research in the last 20 years. Wow, that is really cool. 
I love astrophysics stuff. It always makes my brain hurt, but I do enjoy it very much. We've been speaking today with Rongmon Bordeloy, Assistant Professor of Physics here at NC State. My name's Tracy Peake. This has been Audio Abstract. Thank you so much for listening.